0: welcome to the big unlock podcast a top digital transformation podcast for healthcare executives now in season four this podcast is brought to you by demo consulting a pioneering digital transformation advisory firm that works with the nation's leading healthcare enterprises join host patty padmanabon founder ceo of demo consulting and best-selling author of healthcare digital transformation how consumerism, technology, and pandemic are accelerating the future in conversation with leading digital health innovators and practitioners. The theme music for this podcast was composed and performed by Patty.
1: I am here today with Michael Hasselberg, Chief Digital Health Officer at the University of Rochester Medical Center in Rochester, New York. Michael, what a pleasure it is to have you on the show and welcome.
2: Patty, thank you for having me. Super excited and ready to begin wherever you would like to.
1: Fantastic. So firstly, for the benefit of our listeners, the University of Rochester Medical Center, URMC, was named to our inaugural list of digital health leaders and innovators for our Digital Maturity Awards program from Demo Consulting. So, And Michael, as a leader of the digital health program at URMC, uh, first of all, I wanted to Start by congratulating URMC and for your your personal role in all of the successes that you've had, which we're going to talk about a little bit.
2: Yeah, thank you, Patty. I mean, it was such an honor and it was actually a really welcome surprise. And, you know, we were just excited to be named uh, in the same sentence as, you know, some of the other leading organizations around the country. So absolutely, thank you so much and uh, for honoring us.
1: Thank you. Well, why don't we start with this? URMC is an academic medical center. AMCs have a very unique uh, dynamic. Can you talk, can you start a little bit by telling us a little bit about the the University of Rochester Medical Center and uh, what makes your organization a little bit unique?
2: Yeah, absolutely. We're actually, I think, even more unique than most academic medical centers uh, left in the country these, these days in the sense that our health system is still truly fully integrated into our university. And so, you know, what that means is the budget on the health system side rolls up to the budget uh, of the university. And most ha- academic health systems today are no longer fully integrated with their parent university, that they have broken off from the parent university under this concept that on the health system side, we tend to make money. And on the academic side, it's much harder to make money. And the health system ends up subsidizing and is sending a lot of their margins uh, over to the college to help support uh, those Missions and a lot of academic medical centers said, you know, hey, if we broke away from our parent university, it's going to be easier for us to t- obtain our one to two percent annual margins uh, per year that we're trying to achieve. And at University of Rochester, we have made the conscious decision that we are not breaking away from our our parent university, and we actually leverage that as a differentiator for us. And so, when we think about digital health and digital transformation, I have access to some of the most brilliant engineers, computer scientists, data scientists in the country right at my parent university. And I have access to business faculty and even faculty from our music school. And I can apply that expertise and capacity to to solving some of our most difficult problems uh, in our health system that we're trying to solve and leverage that expertise to build and create and deploy new technology solutions uh, into our ecosystem. So it's a unique place and uh, I love it. Absolutely love it.
1: So uh, conversely, does it also then influence your priorities as it relates to what kind of digital health initiatives you should be in uh, to serve your population? Can you talk a little bit about that? And I start with, uh, you know, what kind of populations do you serve?
2: Yeah, so we serve a very diverse patient population. To some context of around the University of Rochester a medical center and health system, you know, we're you know the largest uh, health system outside of New York City. And so in terms of geography, we have a large geography in the state of New York from, you know, central New York all the way out to the Ohio border and all the way down to kind of to the Pennsylvania border, we have patients uh, that we serve. And so in terms of kind of diversity of these patients you know we have everything from the inner city of Rochester which looks like the inner city of most uh, moderate sized cities across the country but you go 20 25 miles outside of uh, the city and you could be in some of the more rural areas in the state or or in the country a good portion of our patient population is uh, safety nets and and Medicaid so we have a lot of underserved and vulnerable patients uh, um, that. Seek care out at our academic medical center, and so for those reasons, and trying to engage and reach those those patient populations, you know, we've had to think outside the box, and you know, think of other technology solutions to, again, meet the needs of our patients in our inner cities to meeting those patients who, you know, there may not be a specific specialist for four counties around them and how do we get care out to them. In regards to our technology priorities and the influence that the college has on that, actually not a whole lot of influence from the college in the normal sense. We have a very clear digital transformation strategy that's set out. When we have gaps in our technology stack where we say, hey, we need to solve this problem. We currently don't have a solution in our technology stack where we may lean on the college. And that expertise is if we can't find a solution, we can't find an external vendor that's we think best of breed to fill it in. We'll leverage our expertise at the college and say, "Hey, can you help us develop the solution in-house?" And and it's not. We don't develop technologies for the purpose of spinning out companies. We don't have a real true investment arm. So we're different than another one of your honorees like Providence Health, which has you know a $300 million venture arm where they actually incubate a lot of companies in-house. They invest in them and spin them out. We don't do that. So when we build our technologies, it's truly being built to serve our patient population, to serve our community. And we're actually more likely than not when we build to open source our code and give our technologies away to other health systems in the country. And we have a lot of examples of doing that and other health systems and industry coming in and taking our code and applying it to their system. So the college, I would say, kind of augments the strategy, but doesn't set it or drive it. They help us fill the gaps.
1: We made a couple of interesting comments there. And I want to drill into that a little bit. So You mentioned that you serve a fairly diverse population. There's Rochester City, and then there's there's a very large kind of a geographic area that that you talked about. And you've got rural population, Medicaid population. So what are you hearing from these populations in terms of what they want, what they seek from an organization like URMC? And uh, can you talk about one or two solutions or programs that you've developed that are technology-enabled from a digital health standpoint and uh, what kind of benefits you've delivered, just for us to get a sense of the work that you've done.
2: Yeah, so couple of things. Access to healthcare is something that we hear across the board that these populations are seeking. So it doesn't matter if you're in the inner city or if you're in rural America, folks wanna have access. I think one of the myths that jumps out often in the digital health space is this this digital divide and that some of these population populations don't have access to the technology needed to essentially receive care through technology or there's not broadband out in these communities. So they cannot engage in, you know, a lot of the digital modalities. And and what we have found in Rochester, at least for our market and our patients that we serve, that that's a total myth, actually. And especially in some of our more rural areas of the state, one of the things that our previous governor of new york state did was invested really heavily in getting broadband access out across the state. so there isn't a problem of internet not being out in some of these more underserved communities. there's internet there. the other thing that we have found is a lot of our patients, you know, have one of these devices. pretty much everybody has one of these devices in terms of a smartphone and you can do a lot with engaging patients on that smartphone. However, as we started deploying things like telemedicine very broadly during the pandemic, what we had found was that, especially in some of these more rural areas and with our safety net patient population, They engage quite a bit in regards to telephonic interactions with our providers for care, but not so much on the video side. And when we did a deeper dive in that, the reason why was, although there's internet access out in these rural communities, the only internet that they have available to them is their data plans on their phone and when you're pushing out a video conferencing feed to somebody's data plan on their phone it eats up that data plan quite significantly so you know we've really thought of and engaged into more like text based uh, applications mobile app applications to help engage these patients and we're we're thinking outside of the box around you know how we can identify other partners where we can meet these patients in their communities to actually deliver video-based care. But a selfish plug, we just last month had a publication in the New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst actually talking about our experience delivering telemedicine to the safety net Medicaid population in these rural areas. And what? And again, as they engaged in care, we found out that these populations... Engage more via digital modalities than actually in person. And comparing them, they engage more in the digital modalities than even some of our commercial hair patients do. And not only do they engage, what we found was they required less in-person care after that engagement uh, in the video consult. They were ending up in the EDs more often than our patients coming in person. And we found that the patients that engaged in the digital modalities were actually requiring less expensive imaging and lab work than those that were coming in person. And so all these myths that, you know, delivering care Digitally, is going to result in higher costs because providers aren't going to be able to lay hands on them. So they're going to need to order more tests, more imaging to get the data to make those confident care decisions. We did not see that. The idea that because the provider is not going to be able to lay hands on these patients, they're going to end up in the ED more or they're going to require more in-person follow-ups because they're not going to get their care needs met. We also did not find that. And again, the patient population that did the best to have, you know, decrease in cancellations, no-shows, and more follow-up? Was the safety net patient population engaging in telephonic and video digital modalities to receive care?
1: Yeah. Did this uh, hold true for all types of care, namely your episodic, your preventative, your chronic disease management? Did it hold true for all types of care or was it more pronounced for one type of care versus another?
2: Yeah, great question. Where I think we had the most success was in primary care. And, you know, our primary care, they kind of see whatever kind of comes through the door. Other areas that we continue to have success is behavioral health. A lot of uh, continued engagement uh, in that area. You know, we're having a lot of success in the urgent care setting and even kind of emergency department uh, setting with these modalities. Now, you know, in terms of what types of digital modalities that we have success in, some of our subspecialty areas, it actually may not be telemedicine. And, and part of that is is digital health, in some ways, really disrupts their current workflows. And those workflows and some of those more procedural-based subspecialty disciplines is set up to be successful with that patient showing up in the office and being seen in person. And so if you apply too much digital transformation to those subspecialty areas, it kind of disrupts what's working for them now. And being in a health system that's primarily reimbursed still in fee-for-service, and we have very little value-based reimbursement contracts. We really don't want to disrupt a whole lot of our high cost procedural base of specialists and what they're doing. And so in some of those areas, the digital engagement maybe has not been as, as strong as it's been in primary care and behavioral health and geriatrics and urgent care and some of our more non-procedural based uh, specialty or kind of discipline areas.
0: We hope you're enjoying this podcast. Visit us at democonsulting.net and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to previous episodes at thebigunlock.com. With that, back to the conversation.
1: It's a fact that a lot of these decisions eventually have to come down to the reimbursement uh, mechanism. That's ultimately the economics of the business has to play out somewhere. But to, to go back to the earlier question that I had, what about the caregivers and the physicians? How have they responded to these digital modalities, even if it is for Let's say, primary care or urgent care or some very specific types of care, what have they had to change or adapt to in terms of their own training, reorientation, whatever the case may be? Can you talk about their expectations and how you met their expectations?
2: Sure. And I suspect a lot of your listeners at other health systems are going to have, have experienced a lot of what I'm going to say. And so, you know, when we started our digital transformation strategy in our health system. And the first two years of the strategy was primarily focused on access and how do we essentially create a digital front door where our physical front door is located and our physical front door is primary care. So that is where we narrowly focused our beginning of our transformation strategy. And You know, when we started in primary care, we actually had a significant amount of resistance. And the resistance was, right now, my caseload is full. I don't have room to take on any more patients. And what do you mean, do you want me to use more technology? This electronic health record that you have me use is kind of the bane of my existence. Like I am documenting all day long and answering messages from my patients and looking at labs all day. You can't add another technology on top of the electronic health record, like I can't do it. So that was a lot of what we heard and a lot of the resistance. And so we listened to that. We understood that. And we needed to help relieve some of their pain points. And so, you know, one of the things that we got started was we needed a true digital patient portal into our health system. And we're an Epic shop and MyChart is the patient portal for Epic. And we needed to start there. And our MyChart uh, penetration, um, when we started, our digital transformation was not high in primary care. It was below 30%. And we knew if we were going to engage our patients through digital mechanisms, we had to get that MyChart and that patient portal penetration up. But again, we had resistance on the primary care side who was not championing the patient portal in my chart because they didn't want more messages coming in. And they equated the patient portal to being their in-baskets, which was overwhelming them. And so understanding that to get early wins and buy-in from our providers, we had to help them out. And we had to do a deeper dive into what was clogging up their in-baskets. And we found some low-hanging fruit of things that were clogging up that in-basket. And we made system-level decisions of getting that stuff out of the in-basket. And we were able to really quickly reduce the in-basket burden on our clinicians by 15%, essentially by hitting a click of a button in our system. And getting that win, which had never happened for these primary care providers in at least the years that I've been in the uh, institution since we've gone live with Epic, that was huge for us. And that gave them... I think more confidence that, hey, let's give this a try. And so they started engaging in the digital transformation strategy. They started championing my chart. And now our patient portal penetration in primary care went from less than 30% is up about 90% in a two-year period of time in that primary care setting. And so for us, again, we had resistance at the beginning, but we had to get those early wins. And then kind of along that transformation in primary care, we would get early wins and we would celebrate those wins with our providers. And we showed the benefits of, hey, we're going to save you more time. And we're actually going to kind of free you up to do the things that you really want to do is is see patients and not be documenting and doing all this kind of other stuff over here. And so that's how we were successful. And we find the same kind of experience in our specialty service lines as we've expanded our transformation out. And one of the things I'm very grateful of is I have a great partner in crime. Dr. Greg Nkantri is our our chief medical information officer. And him and I are attached to the hip. And you know he's really kind of the clinical informatics leads are helping doing that translation and helping getting buy-in at the provider level and really Leaning on the the clinical informatics team and both Rosemary Ventura is our chief nursing informatics officer and leaning on her on the nursing side. That has also been really, really helpful to move forward this, this digital transformation with our providers.
1: Yeah, fascinating story. And of course, one thing that I've seen common across all of the organizations that are making great progress with digital is that it's always a team effort. There's a group of senior executives kind of joined at the hip, as you indicated. Let's touch on the technology landscape, the technology solutions landscape. You've obviously deployed the technology very successfully in your context in certain types of care, primary, urgent care, and so on. How do you go about making technology choices And talk to us specifically about the trade-offs you make when you consider something that is native to your EHR platform, in your case, Epic, versus something that may be a standalone tool, which is best in class, but also has its own set of trade-offs.
2: Yeah, folks that have heard me maybe speak in other forums, I've talked about this quite a bit. In some ways, a little bit bullish in my response. Because we're an Epic shop, we take an Epic first mentality. What I mean by that is if Epic... Has the functionality, and the functionality is good enough. It does not have to be the best or kind of peripheral patient experience or patient access functionality that's kind of a little bit outside of Epic's, you know, bread and butter, we're going to go with Epic solution every single time even if there is a better solution out there. And part of the reason is we've just made so much of an investment as a health system into Epic like we have to maximize that investment as as best as we can. That being said, if Epic doesn't have the functionality and or it's on their roadmap but we don't have have like a real clear indication of when it's actually going to go live on their roadmap which happens a lot or it's not on their roadmap that's when we have to make decisions of is this a high enough priority like we can't wait we can't wait until epic gets there on the roadmap or whether they decide that they're going to put it on their roadmap like we need to find a solution now the way we evaluate External vendors is not, you know, the typical way a vendor may think they would get evaluated. Like to be frank, I don't really care if you're the best in class vendor out there. My first priority is less on your success and how great your UI UX is and um, kind of results there. It's truly what is your level of integration into Epic, and if you don't have a real kind of nicely integrated package within Epic already, you're probably not going to make it on our list of even a a vendor to consider. So like that is priority number one for us is what is that that level of integration? If we then find solutions that are truly feels integrated into Epic's hyperspace, both for our providers, but then also kind of integrated, let's say into the patient MyChart portal in a way that the patients continue to have that omni-channel experience, we're, we'll, we'll onboard you into our healthcare ecosystem to fill that gap. And if we're unable to find that great vendor, as I said, you know, one of the things that's really unique about Rochester and what you know, probably excites me the most is we actually have a true digital innovation incubator. It's not a research shop at all. It has faculty from all of our schools under the same roof as faculty in the medical school and dental school and nursing school. And it's the incubator shop to use design thinking methodologies. And we build solutions in-house to fill those gaps. And we build them right in Epic and kind of fully integrated in. And so that's kind of my thought process and our thought process at the U of R as we're thinking about our technology stack and how we take on new solutions.
1: Yeah, and uh, that's not uh, dissimilar to what we hear from a lot of other health systems that have kind of uh, made uh, substantial investments in Epic. And of course, it's a matter of trade-offs. Epic being good enough is good enough for you, but for some other health system, maybe good enough isn't good enough. They want it to be best in class because of the competitive landscape or for whatever other unique organizational reason that they may have, or maybe they're The populations they serve are expecting something better and different depending upon the demographics. There could be a whole lot of other reasons as well. And we, you know, it's fascinating to see how for the same question, you're going to have a very different set of trade offs that every health system goes through. Coming up to the end of our time here, Michael, and I wanted to touch on, zoom out a little bit, if you will. We've gone through a very challenging year in 2022, macroeconomic conditions, uh, interest rates, labor shortages, variety of things. What do you see ahead for health systems in general? And from URMC's standpoint, what are you planning for from a digital health priorities slash investment standpoint going into 2023?
2: Yeah, our big investment in priority is actually data and getting our data organized and in good shape. And especially of all of the great technologies that we've rolled out in the access portion of our digital transformation strategy and in the engagement portion of our digital transformation strategy, we're actually collecting a lot of data from these technologies that we've typically not had before in our databases within the health system. The problem that we've had as a large academic medical center or a large academic health system is we have a lot of data silos and we don't really have like a, a source truth of data. And so our major priority right now is really building out our enterprise data warehouse and breaking down those silos, bringing in all of this new data from these technologies that we've rolled out over the last couple of years and making sense of it. And that's actually going to set us up uniquely in two different areas. One, it's going to help my health system, you know, make more strategic decisions around taking on risk from a maybe a, a payer standpoint in the future and kind of get us really set up nicely for moving into more value-based arrangements. So like that's priority 1, but Priority two is our workforce uh, struggles and, and our workforce uh, shortage. And data will allow us to we're to start making investments in the workforce. But at the same time, when you have your data all cleaned and aggregated, that's when you can actually start taking advantage of some of these machine learning products that are popping into the market. And a lot of that kind of machine learning um, and artificial intelligence uh, technologies that are coming out can potentially have a significant impact on the workforce shortage and can help us maybe start automating things um, and supplementing where we have gaps in our workforce. but. I have a lot of AI vendors that approach me and want to partner with Rochester. And actually my response to them is, we're not ready yet, you know? And the reason is, is you may have the best algorithm or model built, but my data isn't there yet. And if I was to roll out your model now and I put my data in, The results that are going to come out the other side are probably not the results I was hoping for. And so we want to put ourselves in a good place to take advantage of machine learning and artificial intelligence in the future to help our workforce, but also to help us make better strategic decisions around transformation in general, that being on the digital side or that even just being on kind of the payment side.
1: Yeah. Just one quick follow up on that before we close out. Are you looking more at uh, data from the point of view of, let's say, a consumer data strategy that helps you improve your engagement and outreach, or data more from the standpoint of improving healthcare outcomes, or is it both?
2: It's absolutely both. And actually, one of the things that really excites us is on the outcome standpoint and and actually kind of merging that data together. So one of the other things that we're proud about at Rochester is we're the home of the biopsychosocial model of medicine and kind of thinking about care from these holistic kind of broad domains. We made a strategic decision about seven years ago that we were going to profile our patients using patient reported outcomes. And within those broad domains, and so it didn't matter if you came to my health system with a toenail injury, we were going to ask you about your emotional distress, your physical functioning, your pain interference, and your social functioning every single time. And we collected this data on iPads and we integrated it right into Epic. And now, you know, my health system has, as far as we're aware, the largest patient reported outcome data set in the entire country, all systematically collected in these broad domains. And so now we've got these outcomes based off the patient's own perceptions, their own voice and how they're doing in healthcare. And we can combine that with some of the more quantitative data that we have in the EHR about lab outcomes or mortality outcomes. We can combine the patient's perception with those outcomes. And then we're collecting now all of these kind of new consumer engagement data that we didn't otherwise collect using technology. And that's going to be the secret sauce. So when I think about... Disruptors in general, and you think about uh, in other verticals, and you think of Amazon and how they totally disrupted retail. You know, Amazon didn't do it because of they're setting up an e-commerce website. It was the data behind that e-commerce website, and you know, Amazon knows you as a consumer better than you know yourself, and that's where we want to get to healthcare. You know, I want to be able to to help predict what you're going to need as a patient before you know you even need it and get you to the right level of care at the right time. And we think that combination of patient reported outcomes collected in these broad domains, combined with our EHR data, combined with this new consumer data that we're getting from technology and combined with claims data and others will help us at Rochester develop that our own Amazon recommendation algorithm that they've patented, and we're going to do it for healthcare. And so that's, for me, I think that's where the future is going. And that's why we're now heavily invested in getting our data to a point where we can start leveraging our Data Science Institute and leveraging some of, at the college, and leveraging some of these AI vendors to help us get there.
1: Exciting stuff. I can't wait to hear more in the months to come as you make progress with this. Michael, thank you again so much for setting aside the time to be with us on the show and all the very best to you and your team.
2: Thank you, Patty. It was a pleasure to join your podcast.
0: We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We invite you to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Healthcare Digital Transformation Leader. Write to us at info at with your feedback and questions.